Okay, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Free Association. And I've got a, an interview with Catherine Austin Fitz to play, which is from The Truman Show. It's episode, I think it's episode 51 of The Truman Show podcast. And uh, it's an hour and a half or so, so I'm just going to let it play. Hopefully I won't fall asleep too too much, uh, but if you hear snoring in the background, that's why, because it's half past midnight, it's uh, it's quite late, so if I fall asleep, I fall asleep, there's nothing much I can do about it, uh, but uh, here is Catherine Austin Fitz. That was good, eh? Yes, okay. very, very smooth. <laughs> um, she's been uh, for quite some time now exposing the criminality in the financial system, and she started the Solari Report, which is right under my nose over here. I think we will talk about that in a bit as well. Um, I'm super grateful for being here, but before we start with the podcast, guys, if you like it, please um, share the video online, share it with your friends, and subscribe on my channel if you haven't done it before. Also, if you want to uh, help me, you can donate on my website, www.yourluka.com. All your help. Um, yeah, thank you for that. That makes us possible to do this. Um, Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to host you here in Stavoren. Yeah. Welcome to Friesland. Thank you very much. Yeah. I just told you, like, we, we've been, like, six times before to Friesland, and it's always a nice, um, uh-huh. a welcoming feeling to come here because the countryside is so beautiful. It feels a bit different compared to the, uh, to the rest of the Netherlands. Yeah. It's very... Um, it's extremely beautiful and very grounded. Yeah. yeah. So what, because we're, we're sitting in quite a funky room here, <laughs> um, and I like it, it's, it's a good atmosphere, but maybe you can tell us a bit more, like why, why are we sitting here? So we're sitting here because my partner lives in Stavoren, mm-hmm. and I first was in the Netherlands for a month in 2015, and Robert said, oh, you have to come to Stavoren, and I thought, why? Why do I have to come to Stavoren? Not really, I, I would end up living in Stavoren, but I came out here, um, all of our our video and audio was done in Stavoren by Robert Duper Video, and so um, I would come, every time I came to Europe, I'd come to Stavoren, and we would work together. He has this lovely small apartment building, so it was always easy to get an apartment, and um, uh, and so I would stay, and we did more and more t- uh, together, mm-hmm. and we publish four times a year a wrap-up, and we decided to move our hard copy in 2019 to Robert to also, in, in addition to doing the audio videos, the hard copy. So well, the printer was here in Snake. And um, I came to, uh, and, and I was spending so much time in the Netherlands that it really pinched the amount of time I could spend in Europe under the Schengen re- restrictions. So Robert and I decided we would start a company, and then I could apply for Dutch residency. And um, and then I was free. You know, I was free of the Schengen restrictions. Mm. So if I needed to be in Stavoren for two or three months, I could also end up doing the other traveling I needed to do in Europe. And the plan was, you know, <laughs> life is what happens when, you're, when you have another plan. <laughs> but... Uh, the plan was I was going to spend half my time in Europe and half my time in in um, in the in the United States with my base camp here. I'd rented an apartment, a base camp here in Stavoren, and then the lockdown came, and one thing led to another, and one thing led to another, and I haven't been back. Mm. So you asked me, you know, how long am I going to be here? Yeah. You know. No idea. But it's no good idea. to not have a plan, right? 
you know, I always have a list of things I want to accomplish. And you, I learned this litigating with the federal government for 11 years because you don't control your schedule mm-hmm. in something like that. But I would wake up and you have a list of things you want to do and suddenly the world makes it impossible for you to do these things. And you're like, okay, I guess I'm going to do these things. Mm. And it was very easy. You saw that here in Stavorin. When the lockdowns came the first day, I walked out. Now, in America, where I live, everybody would be in a state of trauma and sitting on the couch watching TV. In Stavorin, everyone was out cleaning and painting their house. Mm. Because you could see they all said, you know, I was planning on doing my spring cleaning in April. But apparently, because I can't go to work today, I'll do it now. Mm. (laughs) So it's the same philosophy of, you know, we we push forward where there's an opportunity. Yeah. Well, that that's a good way to put it and to look at it, especially nowadays where I think a lot of people are uh, are afraid of what is going to happen and maybe not do anything because of their being afraid. Um, but it's also creating opportunities, actually. Right. And, you know, it's funny because I kind of feel like the whole world is going through a process I always already went through. Mm. You know, so from 1995 to 2010, I went through that process. So, um, you know, dealing with tyranny up close is very uncomfortable. But at some point you have to arrive at a place where you start worrying about what's the future I'm going to create because I've had it with these folks. Mm-hmm. Mm. And maybe also accepting the fact that tyranny is a real thing and, and it's happening right on our nose. Right. Yeah. So, but because you actually you predicted almost everything what is happening now at the moment, right? right. Way before the lockdowns happened. But um, what's happening now is a mathematical certainty. Mm. If you take all the, you know, so we have a baby boomer generation throughout the G7, really throughout the world, and and that generation was made millions of promises for healthcare and retirement. If you, if you basically steal and shift the money that you were going to use to fund that retirement and all those promises, then it's a fait accompli that you're going to renege on those promises. And the question as a political matter is how are you going to market that, you know, that, that abrogation? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's nothing like a magic virus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, it's the magic virus that was. Yeah. yeah. So, but that, I think that's a good thing to zoom in on that a bit more because uh, maybe a lot of people know it already, but I think a lot of people don't really know it already, and well, not that specifically, um, because I mean, you worked on the uh, on the George H. Uh, w. Bush, and that's, I think, well, maybe you can explain it, but that's maybe the the point where you where you started to see that the corruption, or or at least. Um, see what they were doing with, with, with our money, basically. Right. So I left the Bush administration basically thinking, you know, these guys are going to get hold of this technology and kill us all. And part of it wow. was the at the end of World War II, you had a series of laws in the United States that created a wall of secrecy and something called the black budget. So you had more and more of the financial system, particularly the government financial system, being run on a secret basis that was financing tremendous developments in technology that were all secret. And so you literally have a divide in the in the population between the population and leadership because they're moving forward at high speed with all this fantastic technology and everyone else is in the dark. Mm. And you literally are getting this tremendous divide in learning speeds and, 
intelligence and awareness of what's really going on. So when you look at the technology they had in 91 and what they were going to do with it, I, you know, it really shocked me. And, and what most shocked me was the, the sense you got from them that they literally were beginning to look at the average person as if they were a member of a different species. Mm-hmm. You know, so you were watching a society evolve that had lost any sense of empathy with the general population. Mm. And that was scary. So I left and said, you know, we need a new plan. And I started a company, and the company's goal was to figure out how communities could um, basically get rid of government money and finance on a self-supporting basis. Mm -hmm. Community currencies, community equity pools, community venture capital, you know, and, and basically because with the new technology, you could so improve the learning metabolism and intelligence of a place that you could realign the financial system with the environment so everybody could make money healing the environment. Mm. I mean, that's what's so terrible about what I call the climate change op because it's a, you know, it's a heavily top-down, role-based system of control when, in fact, um, left to their own devices, as long as you organize the financial system properly, people would be delighted to heal the environment, yeah. and you could do so in a very profitable base. You know, it's not, you know, you just wouldn't end up with the same people in control. No, that's almost like a paradox, right? Like, everyone wants to um, be good for the planet, and, and um, but by complying, actually, with the rules from the government, you make it worse. Make it much worse. Um, right. And if you leave it up to us, we probably would fix it way better than the governments Absolutely. are intending to do. Because they're not even intending to make it better. Well, tyranny is, is fantastically expensive, um, you know, not just financially, but environmentally. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget one of the funniest lectures I ever in my life was two years ago in, in Italy. I was in Umbria. And we had lunch with a German scientist, Brian, who spent the whole lunch comparing the carbon footprint of a Lockheed F-35 to a cow. <laughs> It's right when they started to say that the cows were, you know, yeah. causing climate change. <laughs> and when you do a comparison, it's... Yeah, but it's like, that doesn't, I mean, it doesn't make sense, but people don't listen to it, right? They don't... I think they listen to it. I think they don't know what to do. Mm. So one of the great lines when um, when the new climate change star was appointed in the United States, we have a team meeting twice a week at the Solar Report, and we came in, and, and one of my teammates said, why did the president just appoint a climate change star who has the carbon footprint of a panzer division? <laughs> I don't know if you saw the headline. Apparently, for COP26, there were, and and the G7 meeting, there were there were or G20 meeting, there was 400 private jets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go figure. 400 yeah. private jets to to fly all the influential people in there. Um, but it's cows. Cows. But it's cows. Yeah. <laughs> well, something interesting you just told me was um, uh, they they the people in government see themselves probably because of all the technology and stuff, but they see themselves really as a, as a different kind of race, even maybe, compared, compared so spe- to I would species. describe it as species. Yeah. Um, what happens is when you're in a very centralized system, um, it's extremely hard to manage the whole system the way you want to go because what you're doing is so fundamentally out of order with fundamental economics and fundamental behavior. Mm. So it gets very frustrating, because, and especially because of the secrecy. So if, you know, if we have a thousand people 
and the logical thing for us is to go to the right. But you don't know that's the logical thing because it's all secret. You're in the dark. Mm. Um, I once likened it to a symphony orchestra trying to play in the dark. You know, mm. nobody can see the score. Nobody has a shared score. So because of the secrecy, you you come up with these fantastic explanations. You know, we're going to the right because of the magic virus, you know, and you come up with these <coughs> fantastic cover stories. And it becomes very frustrating if you're the leader mm. and you get angrier and angrier. And what you will see is people in in these positions become extremely frustrated because on one hand, they're being told they have to do something. On the other hand, they can't explain to people why they're doing it. Mm. So let's look at COVID. You had, um, you know, 190 plus presidents minus, say, five to seven you know, follow the official line. And they followed official line in a way that was totally irrational for what was in the best interest of their country and citizenry and what the citizens wanted. Um, you know, why did they do that? Clearly, they are subject to force and secret force that they can't mm. talk about. We had five to seven presidents who refused to go along who just happened to be assassinated or have heart attacks or get voted out of office mm -hmm. and you can see why um you know the presidents who are going along are afraid they're going along because they don't think they have a choice mm. but they can't say that no i think that is that's a good point of view because it also maybe can bring up some compassion for for um like for Compression is maybe difficult. Now I'm seeing Hugo de Jong in the Netherlands, his face and how he always does all this, everything what he does. But still to have a bit of compassion because uh, I do also believe that they um, they are forced to do what they're doing at the moment. And, and it helps you understand a bit that the, the powers that, that right. be are way bigger than one politician in, in, in one country. Right. So, for example, I have an online book that I've tried to publish in hard copy three times. And each time I came into unbelievable interference. And the last time they threatened to kill somebody in my family if I published it. Wow. And my attitude was, it's not censored, it's online, it's free, Any, anybody can read it. It's in, um, it's in French, it's in Spanish, we're just about to put it up next month in German. And, and you know, when that happened, I said, I'm not publishing the hard copy, it's not worth it. I'm not, <clears throat> you know, and, and you don't know what that feels like until it happens to you. You know, so I've had my life threatened on many occasions. I've dealt with physical harassment. That was the only time I had my family threatened. Um, I had my family harassed, and that was pretty upsetting. And when it happens, you know, if you're a president and they threaten to kill your kid, it's tough. Yeah. You don't know how that feels until you're in the position. But who, who did threaten you? So I don't know. I know who delivered the messages and how they delivered it, mm. and I can guess who it was. Mm. It was, you know, if you read the book, you'll see it's, it talks about my old partners at Dylan Reed, so I suspect it was some of, the, some or all of them. Um, you know, but you're never quite sure. No. You know, and it's funny, during when I was litigating, I'd get all these little messages. It was always members of the Council of Foreign Relations. They'd call me and say, you know, I want to invite you to lunch, and then you'd go and you'd get the message, you know, that was, 
and you never you knew it, it was somebody on the executive committee who had given them the message, but you never quite knew no. who it was and what the discussion was. It was always the royal we. Mm. We have decided. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but you did piss a lot of people off during the years, right? Or no? Well, here's the interesting thing. I really didn't mean to. I thought when, if you look at the company that was doing the prototyping of community development, I really thought I had their blessing to do it. And uh, and I also thought that if I was across the line, they'd come and tell me. And you know, in my world, if you if you're across the line, you get a heads up, and then you can move back. And I wasn't trying to buck the system. I was trying to find a plan. You know, they basically. Um, I'll give you an example. In 1997, I was working. I had a company um, that was a subsidiary of my company that was working on a joint venture with the pension fund leadership of the country. And um, I made a presentation to them in 1997 about how we could re-engineer the government money and significantly sort of lower the deficit and significantly improve the economy. And the the head of the, the president of the largest pension fund was on the board and he looked at me he froze and he said you don't understand it's too late I said, what do you mean it's too late he said they've given up on the country they're moving all the money out in the fall wow and that was the fall of 1990 or is the the beginning of fiscal 1998 was october 1997 and that's when all the missing money started to disappear so there's now we've now documented with government documents there's over 21 trillion dollars missing So they basically told you then that, that they were going to, to move it. Well, I thought when he said that, I misunderstood. I thought he, he meant we're going to move all the money we can move legally. So I thought he meant we're going to reallocate the portion of pension fund equity and bonds to emerging markets mm -hmm. and out of domestic markets. What I didn't understand is, no, he meant all. And we're going to basically have a financial coup. And the financial coup is going to work as follows. We lever up the governments. You know, so the governments issue huge amounts of debt. That debt is sold to our pension funds, okay? And then we suck the money out of the back door. So it's a coup by financial mechanism. And so the pension funds end up with trillions of dollars of treasury bonds issued by a government and all the assets are gone. Yeah, so they're worthless, actually. Well, it's not worthless because it gets back to the taxing power. The question, though, is if you're a taxpayer, why would you keep paying taxes into that system? Mm -hmm. It's not financially rational. The reason you might is now your pension fund, instead of having real assets, has the treasury bonds that have financed this game. And so, you know, your taxes as Uh, are basically supporting the debt that is now in your retirement fund. So if you don't keep paying your taxes, your retirement fund is essentially empty. Yeah, I'm grossly oversimplifying, but yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, I think it's good for people to know, like, like that's basically where they stole your pension funds. Well, think of again, it's a coup because it's a change of government. So if you lever up the governments and take the money then the central bankers are in a position to control fiscal policy. So for, you know, since the end of World War One or two, depending on when, you know, where you are, we've essentially had a balance of power between the people's electorate. So the people pay taxes and they vote for representation, and those representatives allocate and manage the taxes. And then the private bankers run the central bank. So you have this 
balance the power between the central bankers and the electorate. And now what the central bankers are doing is saying, you know something, we're taking complete control. So we will control fiscal and monetary policy, and we'll do it as a group of private people hidden behind the central banks. So, you know, it's basically a, um, a dictatorship of, if you want to call it the deep state, you know, the James Bond movies call it Spectre. Yeah. So I like Spectre. But basically, it's a, it's a dictatorship of Spectre. And the reason dictatorship doesn't properly describe it is dictatorship is a word that was formed when the dictators could control pretty much what happened outside your home. You know, maybe they come into your home. We're talking about something that has 24-7 surveillance of very invasive kinds and can shut off your electricity and shut off your money like that if you don't behave. Mm. So we're talking about what I would describe as a slavery system. Yeah. And from that point, like 99 or something you just told me, um, that was actually like the first time that, well, you noticed and, and they they officially kind of um, gave power to, to like the, the bankers or, or the deep state. So, right. So what was happening was a shift in power and many people couldn't see it because things looked the same and the fraud was keeping the economy floating. So as long as people were making money, they were thinking, okay, well, things are okay. Mm. You know, it's very interesting. The, in finance, traditionally, the smoke alarm to tell you there's a problem is the price of gold. So if corruption is exploding or um, there's a problem with the money supply exploding, uh, the price of gold will go up. Mm. You know, but if you look at the tools we have with digital technology to manage price and finances, You know, you have many different ways of suppressing the price of gold during that period. And literally, so trillions of dollars is going missing. And the price of gold was going up some, but nowhere near as much as people would expect, mm. given what was going on. So um, it was quite phenomenal to live through those periods and to find that most people couldn't fathom that there was a there was a coup going on. And we need, you know, you need to stop the aircraft carrier turning, you know, in the beginning, not at the end, mm. not when you're an inch from the iceberg. Yeah, and that's where we are now, or not? Oh no, we're in the iceberg. Are we already. Yeah, iceberg. people are saying, okay. oh, it, it could get really bad. I said, what do you mean could? Yeah, it's already really bad. It's, we're in bad. This is bad. Yeah. So, but what happened to you after after you if you heard that from 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 yeah, well, from that conversation, or what, what did you do from that point on? So. Um, I was working on a plan that would allow communities to rebuild bottom-up, mm -hmm. and it just made me feel to redouble my efforts. Now, I tried to reach out. The, um, the president of CalPERS said to me, you've got to get to Nick. Nick Brady was the chairman of Dylan Reed, the firm where I'd worked as a partner and, um, and had been secretary of Treasury in the first Bush administration. So I tried to reach out to the establishment to, to explain, look, it's not hopeless. There's a way to turn around the country. And, um, you know, but those those efforts, I mean, they their ship had sailed. They were committed. And, and what they were doing was basically they were bubbling the economy. Um, it's called the strong dollar policy. They were running the dollar up way high and then using disaster capitalism around the world to implode economies. And they could go in and pick up equity pieces cheap. Mm. So the East Asia crisis was a perfect example. In 2001, I was um, in uh, actually it was 2000. I was giving a paper in the city of London 
on the sort of how I call it piratization. It's not pri privatization is when you transfer an asset to to the private hands at market price. Mm -hmm. Piratization is when you transfer it at ten ten cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. It's called a gift. Anyway, so so I was giving a paper on piratization in the housing markets and mortgage markets in the United States. And at the conference was a wonderful reporter named Ann Williamson who had covered the Russian events in the 90s, the rape of Russia, for the Wall Street Journal. And then John Laughlin, who's an amazing uh, British commentator who has written a lot about the European Union and centralization. And he was doing the same for Eastern Europe. And we had just met each other at the conference. And I gave my paper, Ann gave hers, and John gave his. And we realized, oh, my God. It's the same companies, the same investment bankers, the same lawyers, the same university endowments, and they're playing the same game everywhere. But nobody sees it because we each are, know what we're dealing with. And mm. we realized, you know, this is a global coup. Yeah. And um, so from that point on, um, I mean, they had to do, like now they're using or using yeah, they're using COVID, or they invented COVID actually to to um, to do the next steps of their plan, right? I mean, well, in August twenty second, two thousand nineteen, the um, the central bankers, the G seven central bankers, met in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. They do that every year through the Kansas City Fed, and they voted on a plan called the Going Direct Reset, which was put together by a team of retired central bankers working through the BlackRock Investment Institute. And, and the going direct reset was basically, I mean, we have a, a huge wrap-up. And if you go to Solari, you can get a summary that's public. Okay, cool. um, but we've, you know, both in state of our currencies and going direct reset, uh, reset, we tried to really document and explain what happened. I would describe this as the takedown of economy. And you get to a certain point in the takedown, and you can't, you, you can't announce, we're going to shut down all the small businesses, so that the big businesses who are publicly traded can pick up all the market share for free mm. and, um, and, and basically wipe out your business and make you financially dependent on the government. Mm. You can't just announce you're going to do that, so you have to have an excuse, right? And, um, you know, it was beautiful because here's Costco. You know who Costco is? Mm. Warehouse company. Yeah. Goes, okay, here's Costco, and here's a small grocery business. And the small grocery business has to shut down because of the magic virus. But Costco next door is packed with hundreds of people. Mm. They're all in the parking lot, and that's okay because the magic virus does not go into publicly traded companies. Mm. <laughs> it's quite – it's quite – in fact, there were two CNN hosts who had a, had a war about this. Mm. Um, on the TV, it was very funny. And, and Andrew Sorkin literally said, yeah, yeah, that's silent, science. You that know, is science. That is science. The, the, the virus won't bother them. <laughs> That's science. <laughs> oh, I mean, you can call everything science nowadays just to, to prove your point. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. But do you think, like, because the plans, um, the plans to do this, what is happening right now, I mean, that's been going on for decades, right? So there are a couple things that have been going on for decades. So the, so the financial coup has been going on for decades and is now converting to a full-blown coup. Mm. Okay, so we're, we're going from financial coup to coup. 
and um, and the centralization of economic and political control is fantastic. Um, and so, uh, you know, I would say so far the coup has been very, very successful for the people doing it. Another thing that's been going on for a long time, it's really been going on uh, in America, it's, I think it's more pronounced in America, and I call it the Great Poisoning. Mm. Um, the Great Poisoning is a series of things that started very significantly in the 90s that increased toxicity in living beings. And it's, it's not just the people, it's the animals, it's the trees, everything. So it increased toxicity in environmental pollution and it lowered immune uh, system, so immunosuppression. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is if you look at the COVID-19 injections, to the extent we know what's in them and we don't know that it's admitted that we don't know everything that's in them. But what we do know is the early response for the last year is to increase toxicity and lower immune suppression and or lower the immune system. And if you look at what that does, it then creates a whole lot of acceleration of diseases, which are very profitable for the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. And it very much parallels what's been happening to the 90s. You know, so there have been a variety of different things that are poisoning people. Again, rising toxicity, lower immune system, and, you know, uh, uh, just an incredible blossom of autoimmune diseases. And it appears that that's what these injections, they're just going to accelerate the great poisoning. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe it's good because um, you did so many, I mean, a lot of research on, on, on both topics, on, on all these topics on the plans and stuff but maybe maybe it's good to, to explain like one more time like take our time to explain like what is what is actually happening now what is the plan and um what do they want to achieve so we can only guess yeah so uh one of my colleagues says you know we can engage in high octane speculation but i think part of the reason it's hard to predict what's going to happen is their plans are very fluid So they know where they want to go, but there are factions. They're making it up as they're going. And on something like CBDC, I don't think they have nailed down operationally how they're going to implement it. Really? So the C CBDC is the d uh, digital currencies from, from the like, central banks, right? Right. Yeah. So, so, so the, you know, this is an evolutionary process for the leadership. But what they want is they want complete central control. And the way to get complete central control is to end currencies and implement a financial transaction system through the vaccine passports and CBDCs or digital cash. I mean, it's really, all, you know, but, but translate it into an all-digital system where they have complete control. So one thing, if you haven't seen it, have you seen, um, I don't know if you've gone to our website and seen the Cash Friday post. Mm. If you click on Cash Friday, what comes up is an explanation of how Cash Friday came to be. And um, at the top, it's got a video of the general manager of the Bank of International Settlements basically explaining with CBDC they will have complete control. Mm. And not only that, they can make up rules and enforce it. It's only 56 seconds long. And if you can, I would just flip it into this discussion because mm. everybody should see it. Yeah. I mean, he's so... You know, it's very rare to catch a central banker being honest. Yeah. But this is one of these rare, beautiful moments where a central bank banker basically explains, you know, mm. they can turn your money on and off. Mm. And literally, I just posted a rant yesterday. Um, there's a new nominee for the Office of Controller of the Currency in the United States. 
and the nominee has just published an article in the Vanderbilt Law Review basically describing a, a system. Um, she, she calls it the people's, the people's currency. It's really, mm. it's really demonic. Anyway, but, but she proposes a currency where all the bank accounts with the Federal Reserve, and they can turn your money on and off. If they're having inflation problems, they just empty your bank account, mm. yeah. you know, like that. So it's no longer your money. No, it's it's basically if you behave today, we'll give you two more pesos and maybe you have enough to buy lunch. And if you don't behave, no more pesos tomorrow. Communism 2.0, actually. No, this is much worse than mm. communism because this is really slavery. It's because slavery. remember, it's it's not just I have complete control of your financial transaction system, but I have complete control of your healthcare system. I have complete control. You name it, I've got complete control. It's energy, it's housing, it's money, and complete digital control. Mm-hmm. And that's why everything we can do to de-digitize, um, you know, and and get off their system. There's a reason at COP26, Boris Johnson is saying that cash causes climate change. You know, <laughs> always climate change, always right. climate change. Well, because COVID-19 is wearing thin. Yeah. So you need a new ruse. And, and the key, you know, what has happened with the going direct reset and COVID-19 is the central banks print fantastic amounts of money and then they give it to their pals to spend on buying up control, mm-hmm. which is easy because with the riots and disaster capitalism, you know, there are a lot of assets available cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I have to shut down my business, I've got to sell my real estate, you know, to basically buy food for my family. And so, this, you know, the, the New York guys can come in and buy it up cheap. Mm-hmm. So, 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 but, but now they're saying for climate change, they need $150 trillion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so COVID-19 is not going to justify the central bankers printing $150 trillion and giving it to their friends to basically wipe out private property and buy up all the real estate. Yeah, but I mean, you, you, you can't print money for, for like always, right? Like Yes, you can. Yes, you can? You can. You can. And so, so when you print money, you create monetary inflation. Mm-hmm. All you need is deflation to offset the monetary inflation, and you can calibrate. So in globalization, they printed fantastic amounts of money, mm-hmm. but they were able to engineer labor deflation by competing – the frontier markets and third emerging markets labor with the first world labor. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so they engineered deflation. COVID was engineered deflation. So I think of Fauci as having a hotline to the central bank and the central bank says, okay, Tony, shut it down. We need more deflation. So if he deflates the small business economy, then that lowers the pressure on inflation. In the meantime, it makes it possible for the big businesses to buy up the, you know, the Small assets and yeah. take the market shares. The, the little, but that's COVID nineteen engineered deflation. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the climate change rules, you know they're they're designed to engineer deflation. So so I'm going to grossly oversimplify. Think of two groups. We have insiders and outsiders. You you can. You can print money for the insiders and and print money and print money as long as you destroy enough of the outsiders to engineer an offsetting deflation. Mm. So climate change is basically a, a, a financial trick as well then? So it's uh, one of my big goals for 2022 is to really 
dive deep and see what they're up to on climate change. So um, I have to plead. Uh, I know what they were up to as of a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think on climate change, what they want to do is take control of all the real estate and land and, um, and, and re-engineer the use of a lot of land and real estate, including moving population off of you know, different areas. They're going to radically re-engineer where the population lives and how they live and how much land they're allowed to use. Mm-hmm. So I think that per square footage – so in America, if you look at the housing prices – the housing prices can be explained by monetary inflation and larger square feet. I think they want to take the square feet back to where they were at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So, so the living, the average living space of people will be significantly less. So, I mean, for example, in the Netherlands, you can see this already with like um, they're trying to get rid of the farmers, right? Um, and and because of climate change, um, so they can move them out, put some windmills there. Um, and that's how they're trying to sell it, I, I guess. Right. So the goal of – if you you can't have – controlling the currency is not enough. You need to control critical assets. And and the most critical asset to control, particularly in a place like the Netherlands, is food. Mm-hmm. And so there has been a huge push since they started to work on reengineering the currency system to reengineer the food system. And and the key to reengineering the food system is to get to get control of the farmland, and then get people eating as much synthetic food as possible. GMO. <coughs> well, one is you're lowering life expectancy in the general population. So in the elites, the pop the life expectancy is going up, but in the general population, it's going down, and that offsets. But. Um, But the other thing is they can make fantastic amounts of money, both controlling the food system and feeding people synthetic food. Mm-hmm. That's also why Bill Gates is buying all the, um, right. the farmer's land in the United States, right? right. It's like the, the biggest landowner, no, right? Or not? Right. Well, wait do you see what happens if they get $150 trillion for climate change. They'll buy it all. Wow. So actually all the, um, the assets and land and stuff is going to be made. So- Um, so I think what they want to do is end property rights. So when Klaus Schwab says it's 2030 and you have no assets and you're happy, what I hear is it's, it's 2030, we've stolen all your, your property and you're mind controlled. Mm-hmm. You know, so Because otherwise you wouldn't be happy. Um, yes. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So about then, like you, you just mentioned earlier, like BlackRock – Like Black, BlackRock is one of those companies who, who is buying everything up, right? Like I, I think I'm right. So they're an asset manager. So when BlackRock buys any anything, it's for the most part it's not BlackRock. It's the investors behind BlackRock or behind a particular fund, and it's one of the largest index fund managers in the United States. So a lot of the people putting money into BlackRock are just. You know, the people being destroyed by BlackRock are financing BlackRock. And one of my messages is constantly stop financing the people who are killing you and your children. Yeah. Just stop. Mm-hmm. But then you need to first see that they're killing us. Right. Yeah. But, and, and, like, do you have, like, um, I think this is always, like, a, a, a big question mark for a lot of people. Like, who is behind companies like uh, BlackRock, for example? Like, who... Who is actually trying to, to control, control? So in my experience in the United States, so I'll just talk from personal experience. Because yeah. my 
vision of the governance. I think the governance system on planet Earth is secret. And I think it's ridiculous to live on a planet where the governance system is secret. And I think if there's one reform we need, it's transparency about how it works. Um, but in my experience, the group that ran the United States was basically you had a, um, a collection of leaders in different areas that were networked in a variety of different ways, you know, whether groups or secret societies. And they literally ran it top to bottom by consensus. You know, it's very committee system. If you watch an old TV program called Captain and Kings, mm. you know, it's basically cut to 200 guys who get together once a year and run everything. And, and it was very much a Captain and Kings kind of system. The thing that, that changed it from the sort of what you see in, the, in Captains and Kings, which was a 70s film, is the technology in the black budget and the secret budget got more and more sophisticated, more and more sophisticated. So if you look at what's happening that could get 190 presidents to do what they're told, you know, you've got satellite systems that can engineer weather warfare. Mm. You've got satellite systems and suborbital platform weapons that can engineer natural disasters, you know, that are really acts of war. And, and are you saying that that um, certain robot that both things are happening now, like absolutely. the weather modification and, and, and right? So if you're the president of a company and oh, uh, uh, I was, if you're the president of a country, I'll give you an example. There was one that Minister of Alberta in Canada was doing a call-in show, and you could tell this was probably a pretty decent guy. Anyway, um, some woman calls in and says, "Why can't we have ivermectin?" You know, we, we there are therapies that work. Why can't we have them? And he, in in political speech making, you're taught if you get a question you don't want to answer, you're very complimentary of the person who asked the question, and then you pull a non sequitur and answer the question you wish you'd gotten. Okay, and it's standard operating procedure. So this guy gets the question, and you can tell he doesn't want to answer it. And so he, he's very nice and cordial, and then he does a complete non sequitur and starts promoting the vaccination program. And everybody's kind of looking at him like, what's he doing? And you can tell he feels creepy. You know, he feels creepy. And then finally he says, and it's beautiful, he says, I want to thank the people who sent the rain because, you know, if we don't have rain and the farmers all fail, then we'll fail as a province. It's not just the farmers, we'll all fail. So I want to thank the people who sent the rain. And everybody's going, what? Yeah. Right. That's weather warfare. That's a man saying I'm being blackmailed by weather warfare. Wow. Yeah. It's an amazing clip. We use it every week. We do a show called Money and Markets, and we try and pick out the best clips to help people understand sort of the deeper meaning of what's really going on. And we had that one. And the, the other one was following it was um, the head of Ontario who, who got uncomfortable in a similar kind of Q&A and said, look, if I don't do exactly what they say, I'm out. You know, and basically what he was saying is, You know, they're going to put somebody this, in this position until they do whatever the health officer says. Yeah. And I have no choice. I have to do what the health officer says or I'll be fired. Yeah. That's actually quite funny. Did you know how um, Hugo de Jong in the Netherlands got in this position? He, um, there was another guy um, before him and he fainted during kind of uh, some, some kind of discussion in, in, uh, in Dutch government. And um, from that point, he, he was fainted or he was hit by an electromagnetic weapon. What? 
I, or, or maybe he didn't really faint and he was just, it was faking yeah, it. Yeah, it um, But I'm not buying it. But And then he was removed from his position because he was ill and he couldn't go further anymore. And then they, they shoved in Hugo de Jonge, who wasn't elected or anything. Right. And um, yeah, and now he is the one making the rules and, and, and doing the whole COVID thing. Right. Um, and I think a lot of those guys justify what they're doing, saying, you know, if I didn't do it, the next guy would. So, Did you already notice that when you were working um, in, in the government in, in the United States? Yeah, so you'd be given messages. You know, this is the way it's going to go, and you're going to make it go that way. <laughs> That's one of the reasons. I, I got called into the secretary's office, and, um, uh, you know, a couple of, uh, occasions I was ordered to break the law, and I wouldn't. You know, and you have this back and forth, no. and they basically say, you know, you 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 break, you do this or you're out. So you know your you you know your days are numbered if you refuse to break the law. Wow. So, yeah. No, it's, it's all on the chem tapes if you want to hear it. Yeah, you did some tapes, right? Where did you? Where you? Yeah. What happened when I was litigating with the federal government? My attorney asked me to record all my recollections, and I told everything except I held back two of the worst stories. And I later published those in written form. But anyway, and, and it was funny because I was told many years later that, in fact, the reason they wanted the tapes was so they could figure out how to frame me. They couldn't frame me on anything that had happened at my company. So they decided, okay, well, we control the executive branch. We'll frame her. And then they got the tapes and started to listen and went. It was funny because there were a couple of appointees who were particularly egregious. Um, we had a general counsel who I was once sitting at a table with all the political appointees, and I was arguing that we should obey the law. And the general counsel was obeying, uh, was was uh, was arguing that we ought to just ignore the law. And finally, the secretary was so outrageous, the secretary looked at me and said, well, but Frank, it is the law. <laughs> and the general counsel leaned over and he said, F them, F them. By the time they win in court, we'll be gone. What do we care? <laughs> Wow. Oh, yeah, no, it was, it was that this was the neocons. And the neocons were, um, if you've ever seen Charlie Ferguson's documentary mm. about going into Iraq, uh, it's a beautiful description of the neocons. The neocons really believe that, that to just, you know, to, they believe in going in and just destroying and making everything incoherent. And that's a legitimate plan for re-engineering things just destruction but do you think the re-engineering they they honestly think it's the best for the world or it's the best for them that's that's they're just taking you know it's organized crime they're just taking the government is organized crime no that mm. faction is organized crime i mean here here's what you need to understand about the government there is no government so a government is an entity that has sovereignty. The United States government doesn't have information sovereignty, so the president can't make a phone call without 17 intelligence agencies listening and linking it to the New York Times, right? So, you know, we've seen that happen to the president again and again. We had Chuck Schumer get on Rachel Maddow and say the president can't bug the CIA. He has to do what they tell him. They have 50 ways to get him if he doesn't. So the government is being controlled by... For example, the, the CIA. Well, so but the government doesn't have financial sovereignty, okay? Because if you need to borrow money from the central bankers and the markets, 
then you need the central bankers to continue to sell your paper or you can't get everybody paid this week. So let me tell you the red button story. Have you ever heard the red button story? Okay. So I was giving a speech in um, 2000. That was a busy year. And a healthcare practitioner was a member of a group called Spiritual Frontier Foundation International. And they have a conference once a year to talk about how to help our society evolve spiritually. And they're very intelligent, very caring people, nice people. So this is an audience of about 100 people. And I was asked to give a speech called How the Money Works on Organized Crime. And it was meant to be a light and funny description of the intersection between organized crime and Wall Street and Washington to help people understand what was causing the corruption. And it later became a very funny article called Narco Dollars for Beginners. Anyway, so I'm in the middle of the speech, and I was explaining how – the Department of Justice, uh, two years before, there had been congressional testimony about intelligence agency drug dealing in South Central L.A., the so-called Dark Alliance allegations. So the Department of Justice had told a reporter that I was helping with research that the U.S. economy at the time launders $500 billion to a trillion dollars a year of all dirty money. It's much bigger now because of financial fraud, but then it was a half a, a, half a trillion to a trillion. So I said to this wonderful group of spiritually of all people what would happen if we stopped being the global leader in money laundering we had a little conversation they said well you know we'd have trouble financing the government deficit and that money would go to zurich or hong kong and the stock market would go down and um so i said okay let's pretend there's a big red button up here on the lectern and if you push that button, you can stop all hard narcotics trafficking in your town, your city, your state tomorrow, thus offending the people who control $500 billion to a trillion dollars a year of money laundering and the accumulated capital thereon. Who here will push the button? And out of 100 people dedicated to evolving our society spiritually, guess how many would push the button? None. One. One. So I made that one be quiet. I said to the other 99, why would you not push the button? And they said, we don't want our taxes to go up. We don't want our government checks to stop. And we don't want our retirement funds to go down. And what I discovered today, the problem was not that they would not push the red button. The problem was that they wouldn't have an honest conversation about how do we turn the red button green. Because, in fact, tyranny is phenomenally expensive. And there is a way that you can re-engineer the economy so you can turn the red button green. You can make money pushing the red button. Mm -hmm. You can make money healing the environment. You can, get, you can make money getting things to work. Mm -hmm. But you can't do it and keep this big game of secrecy and all the dis disappearing money going. So you can't keep floating the current system and also turn things around at the same time. That's not possible. No, all right, I'll do this in two parts because it's long and uh, and it's getting late. And I'm probably going to do the rest of it tomorrow morning um, after the radio show. But uh, thanks for listening. Uh, that was enough to get your teeth into, I think. She's uh, she's wonderful, Catherine Austin Fitz. Uh, whatever she does and wherever she goes and whoever she talks to, uh, she's always wonderful. Uh, and lots of food for thought in there. I, I'm not sure I believe it all. But uh, the financial side, definitely. Uh, the weather weapons side of things and the electromagnetic weapons side of things, I'm still working my way through. 
because that's a that's a stretch from my belief system a little bit but i'm uh, i'm part of the way there uh, well electromagnetics i understand a lot because i work with electromagnetics on a on a pretty much a daily basis but uh, how to turn that into a weapon i'm not sure about yet uh, anyway that's enough for me for now i'll do the rest of this tomorrow